All right, everyone. Thank you for uh, coming tonight for uh, this Geosource Unleashed. Um, we're going to be talking about the culture of cybersecurity. Uh, we got some great guests tonight, um, so please get comfortable, grab a beer, some pizza. Uh, there's going to be a lot of pizza. I, I was anticipating a, a little bit of a larger group. Um, so eat as much pizza, drink as much beer uh, as you responsibly can. Um, so gentlemen, please have a seat. So just as a little scene setter here, bad actors in cybersecurity pose a significant risk to uh, person personnel, corporate, and national security through threats to financial assets, intellectual property, critical infrastructure, geospatial precision agriculture, biotech, and advanced manufacturing represent sectors of economic opportunity for St. Louis, and secure networks underpin them all. Uh, with success comes challenge. As we grow our technology ecosystem, we will increasingly become the target of cyber attacks. Uh, while, while all face persistent threats in cyberspace, startups, small businesses, and academic institutions can be particularly vulnerable. Cyber criminals, often state-backed, seek to steal nascent technology vital to corporate innovation and the modernization of defense and intelligence organizations. America's entrepreneurs, tech workers, and national security professionals are critical assets to our regional and national success. Yet protecting personal information can be an expensive endeavor, especially given all the businesses um, that must be done, all the business that must be done in cyberspace behind the scenes, and often with third parties. Um, so how do we prevent the next big cyber attack? Uh, well, one answer is by promoting a culture of cybersecurity awareness. Um, so so I'm, I'm Joshua White. I'm the geospatial director here at T-Rex. Welcome to uh, Geosaurus Unleashed. Um, we're joined by uh, two special guests from NGA and FBI. Uh, from NGA, we have uh, Chris Asherbrenner, who is the deputy program director for technology and readiness for NGA's new N2W facility. Uh, we, from FBI, we have Mark Dargis, who is the assistant special agent in charge of the St. Louis division. Uh, so gentlemen, first I'm going to ask you to, uh, to kind of expand on your professional experience and kind of talk about how, uh, you know, how it relates to the topic tonight. We're going to share a mic if that's okay. Just make sure you keep it kind of far. It's very sensitive. I won't lick it. Okay. <laughs> I promise not to. All right, very good. Uh, hi, good evening. My name is Mark Dargis. Uh, as Josh said, I'm the assistant special agent in charge uh, for our FBI field office here in St. Louis, which means nothing to you, so let me explain what that means. Uh, we have a special agent in charge who's the chief federal uh, law enforcement officer for this area. Uh, the FBI in St. Louis covers 48 counties in eastern Missouri, so basically we have half of Missouri as our area of responsibility for uh, a wide variety of investigations of uh, federal law. Uh, I am one of two assistant special agents in charge, and my particular portfolio encompasses all national security programs, our cyber program, and all of our intelligence program uh, that supports all of the FBI's work in the eastern uh, part of Missouri. So I've been doing this job for three years. I've been here in St. Louis for three years now. It's been a fantastic job. I want to introduce Jill Mansfield. She is my cyber supervisor. Uh, so she owns the investigative team and the analytical team uh, that conduct all of the cyber investigations for both criminal actors and national security actors here that we have responsibility for. Um, previous to my assignment here in St. Louis, uh, I've been in the Bureau almost 20 years now. I spent the majority of my career in Washington, D.C. And um, are you going to get into the biography or should I just expand on that? No, please go ahead. So I, I started out in 2003 working in Washington, D.C., uh, doing criminal investigations, mostly white collar crime. Uh, and then quickly found that to be uh, boring and uh, asked to be transferred to the national security side of the Bureau. The Bureau is a very unique agency in the federal government. We have both law enforcement and national security authorities under both Title 50 and Title 28, uh, or excuse me, Title 18, apologies. So uh, we have a very unique mission. Uh, and I wanted to be part of the national security aspect of the Bureau, so I worked uh, counterintelligence and espionage for about 15 years. 
and my last assignment uh, previous to coming to St. Louis, I was the supervisor of a espionage squad in Washington, D.C. that investigated uh, Russian uh, bad actors. That was, that was a quite exciting time. So I'm happy to be here. Uh, St. Louis is a wonderful town. Like I said, I've been here for three years. And the responsibilities for working in the office here in St. Louis are tremendous. And we do a lot of great work that I'm very proud of. And I know Jill is proud of as well. So we're happy to be here tonight. Thank you. I'm Chris Asherbrenner. Uh, as Josh had said, I'm the uh, one of Sue Pullman's two deputies on the NTW program, uh, my opposite number being Frank Cooper. Frank has the construction of the new building, and I've got the IT. So when people wander in in 2005, 2006, when we start moving over there, and they can't log in, it'll be all my fault. <laughs> So I've been with uh, NGA, well, I've been in this job for about five years now, uh, which for me is kind of unheard of to be anywhere that long. Uh, been with the agency for about 20. Uh, came here after getting out of the Air Force uh, back in 02. Uh, that was coming off of a OEF deployment and had one one-year-old and another one on the way, and it was time to go for something a little more, more stable. So came back from that with the Air Force and came to NGA, and I've actually been overseas more with NGA than I was in the Air Force. <laughs> Just works out that way. Uh, but uh, yeah, we've got uh, a good team of folks who's working on the IET for the new facility. Uh, we were just discussing the fact that, uh, you know, it's probably not surprising uh, to hear that NGA is very cautious in how it approaches things to include, you know, IET. Uh, good reason for that. You know, there are product lines that the agency uh, generates that are, you know, aside from, you know, just the national security or intelligence perspective, there are direct safety of life things involved. You know, maritime safety of navigation, aeronautical safety of navigation, you know, geography that, uh, you know, is relied on for all manner of things to include. As the Admiral was sharing yesterday, the uh, couple teams that we sent down to Florida, uh, to assist with uh, search and rescue operations in the wake of Ian. So there's a reason why the agency is a little bit uh, slow to change in some areas, uh, but that's part of what we've been pushing for with N2W, and in particular the IT laydown for N2W, is to, to try to move as much forward as we can with, as you know, many of you may have heard Sue Pullman say, you know, building this building for the next 100 years, that's literally where we're moving out of is a 100-year-old structure. We want to build a new building with an IT backbone that's going to be able to carry, you know, with appropriate recap, the agency for the next 100 years. So we really are looking at doing some interesting things. I like to think the team's doing some outstanding work in that realm. And cybersecurity is just part and parcel of that nowadays. You know, just having to keep that in mind and think in terms of that as we move forward. So in, in keeping with the, uh, the, the nature of the topic, what does uh, culture of cybersecurity mean to you and, and why is that important? Um, we'll just go from, from you, Chris, to, to Mark. Sure. Okay, cool. All right, so in my thoughts, uh, a culture of cybersecurity, the biggest thing is just awareness. Uh, first and foremost, being aware of the environment that you're having to operate in, uh, what sort of an environment you're wanting to deploy your system capability software data into. Uh, the fact that there are bad actors out there who want to you know, disrupt or in some cases steal. And, you know, they're just the, the jokers in somebody's basement who want to just cause havoc as much as possible. Uh, the, the spectrum of threat is broad. Uh, and in particular to this group, uh, as, as folks who are, you know, part of a startup or part of a small business who are wanting to try to, you know, develop something new and different and, and bring that to the market, you know, that can be, you know, perhaps a little bit more serious of a threat than it is for a larger, more well-established company. You know, it's something that I would really encourage you all to, to take seriously because, 
the potential impact of something to you uh, could be much more significant than you know a, a spill or a uh, you know a threat vector that makes it through the defenses up in Boeing or over at Centene. You know, yes, the the level of concern with the the broad customer bases is different, but you know they've got a lot more well-established. Uh, workforce and you know internal processes to deal with that so it's something that you know I, I would just really encourage people to be aware and you know take it into account and take it seriously yeah so the way the FBI looks at uh, cybersecurity and, and fostering a culture is by our mission which is to get out to, to, to the public and to private sector partners and talk about cyber risk, right? So the way the FBI views it and kind of our marketing slogan that we're using these days is cyber risk is business risk, right? We wanna ensure that private sector partners understand it's not just the bureau trying to do an investigation and get in your way. Cyber risk is business risk to you and cyber uh, security is national security, right? So everything that we do, the pace of innovation, the speed of technological development means that things are becoming so interconnected that we can't ignore the fact that just because you are a quote unquote small business operator within a, a defined area within St. Louis doesn't mean that what affects you doesn't affect the rest of us, right? So we, that's how we look at it. Um, we try to encourage people to understand that the Bureau is here to, uh, I hate to be that guy, we're here to help, right? We're, I'm from the government, we're here to help, right? Um, but we are, we're part of the solution. We are not gonna come in and tell you how to build uh, a cyber defense network that protects you from everything, that's not what we do. Uh, but we are your interface when there is an incident and the way that we build that culture of cybersecurity is we encourage you to reach out to us. Uh, get to know us ahead of time, right? So if you are concerned about cybersecurity, you should be finding out who is the chief cybersecurity FBI official in the AOR in this area that you need to interface with, and that's Jill Mansfield, right? And then me. You should know who we are and how to get a hold of us because when, when things happen, you're gonna wanna reach out to us right away. Uh, to echo Chris's point, right, um, cybersecurity awareness is a big part of it. And then I think another aspect of it that is really important, and I think all, this will resonate with a lot of you, is you have to build cybersecurity uh, culture into your business's values, right? So your business has to operate with the value and normal operating procedure that, hey, we're all part of the cybersecurity solution. We should have employees that are aware of the threats. They should be trained. Uh, we should have an IT infrastructure that is resilient and hardened against particular threats, and there should be a plan. You cannot operate uh, on good hope and good faith. That's not gonna carry you through when you're under an attack. So there should be a plan. What does that plan entail? It could be a number of things. You should have good backups. You should have a emergency response plan for who's gonna be there when things actually go down. Who's, do you have cyber uh, threat insurance? I think that's a big thing now, right? Having insurance coverage. Who's your incident response company? All that stuff, right? That's good. The FBI, what, what else we bring to that picture is we have knowledge and experience about certain threat actors and what they're pumping out into the ecosystem. We have partnerships with foreign uh, friendly uh, entities, businesses, law enforcement agencies, intelligence agencies, so that cyber actors operating from a foreign uh, location can't just step in and say, no, you can't touch us, we're outside the United States. We have great uh, contacts, we have good relationships, and we have a long reach when it comes to finding out and holding people accountable for these types of attacks. So that's what goes into our discussion with private sector partners about building that cybersecurity culture. So going, going back to, uh, to, to you, Mark, um, what do you think is the biggest cybersecurity challenge, um, you know, from, from specifically from your perspective at, F, at the FBI? So, you know, talking simplistic, simplistically, because I'm not an expert, but ransomware is the number one thing that we're seeing as a big issue here. Uh, ransomware actors in the past uh, used to be uh, onesie twosie type attacks that would target big companies because they could pay a lot of money, right? That's totally changed these days. Uh, uh, ransomware is now big business and cyber criminals are now organized into almost like, like, uh, like gangs. Right? And they operate almost on a business model to generate revenue and they go after 
uh, mostly small to medium-sized targets because their infrastructure isn't built to withstand it. And number two, they have to pay to get their business back online or they're, or they're sunk, right? Whereas a large company like Boeing or Centene can maybe wall off what's been affected and rebuild it. A small business startup has no capability to do that. They need access to their data. So ransomware is really the toughest nut to crack these days that we're dealing with here in St. Louis. No, I, I, that was actually one of my points. <laughs> uh, a couple other thoughts, though, that we've had. Uh, just with acquiring and trying to configure and deploy the IT for the new facility, uh, supply chain is something that, you know, it, it gets to the, the harder side as opposed to the soft side of cyber. Uh, but for us, it's a big deal because we're trying to make sure, especially given the environment that we deal with, uh, that we can account for the pedigree of everything that we plan to put into that new facility. Uh, you know, the chipsets, uh, the origin of those chipsets, you know, what may or may not be operating inside of them. Uh, these are all things that we wind up having to, to be very concerned about. So uh, I you know, suggest that as you know, small businesses that are looking to potentially do business with the government or even do business with other larger partners. Just be aware that some of the decisions that you might make up front, uh, give a little thought and do a little research into the, you know, that, that whole chain of custody on the supply side for where what you're acquiring comes from and who may or may not have had the opportunity to, to do something nefarious or potentially down the road do something nefarious. Because, I mean, we have very, you know, any more very uh, restrictive uh, rules and guidelines on what we can or cannot bring into the system. And, you know, they're not there simply to be difficult to deal with. I mean, this gets to one of the issues uh, that's, that's of high concern to our security folks. So when you're trying to deal with us, just be aware of the fact that that's one of the things that we do care about. That if you, you know, especially if you try to bring us an appliance or something like that, or when you want to come demonstrate something to us and, you know, it's difficult for us to work with you, uh, it's not always just about the software. You know, some of it has to do with the very hardware that it's running on as well. Uh, one other point I'll make, and this is kind of, coming out from another direction. Uh, some of you are probably aware of the, the administration's zero trust directive, that you know, that's the, where the government is moving towards, you know, a, a zero trust cyber environment. And Mark can probably talk more about that than I can. But you know, that has cost and architecture and design implications. So the fact that we have dealt with you know, the cyber actors and the threat that they've brought has kind of drawn us to this, you know, zero trust implementation. And, you know, you can go talk to the, the big guys, the Googles and the Amazons, who, you know, they allow their workforce to come in from the outside. Well, they come in from the outside because the inside is basically Fort Knox. You know, they've got the, the hardware and the processing capacity to really you know, ensure that nothing's getting in there that they aren't fully aware of and, you know, absolutely able to deal with. That's why they can allow their workforce to come in from the outside. Uh, so that's a, that's a model that we're wanting to look to as well, uh, but it's a different sort of an approach than what we're perhaps used to. Uh, so some of the, you know, assumed thick client implementations that we've had in the past where you've got that box sitting at your desk, that's not where, we're, where our head is moving down the road. So it's, it's a change. It's a change as a result of, you know, in part the cyber environment we're operating in. Something else to be aware of that, you know, when you're looking to, to work with us, that's the model that we're looking to. It's not necessarily a cloud. Well, it, it's a cloud in terms of it's a place, not a thing or it's a thing, not a place, excuse me. Uh, so I'm not talking about we're looking to exclusively operate in a commercial environment. 
but we are more and more looking at that more centralized and allowing a, you know, a virtual access. So something else to keep in mind as, as you're doing your development or looking at what you uh, plan to you know, bring into existence. Uh, so again, from strictly from a cyber perspective, is there anything unique about the uh, about the geospatial um, industry that makes us more or less vulnerable uh, to, to to a cyber threat? Uh, start with you, Chris. Sure. So, I think geospatial makes things more complicated uh, because of the nature of what it is. Uh, we're dealing with typically large data sets. You know, sometimes they're contiguous files, sometimes they're very large databases. That's a lot of data to have to vet. You know, that's a lot to go through to make sure that there isn't something hidden or something that's been you know, uh, adulterated inside of those volumes of data. Uh, there's obviously you know, a linkage to the national security side of the house. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there's also a linkage to a lot of commercial things that you know, wind up being very high impact. You know, to, to Mark's point about uh, you know, ransomware being you know, more, of a, more of a thing uh, from a business model. Uh, if you look at, uh, there was someone from Bayer who was giving a talk about uh, precision agriculture just, the, uh, just this week. Uh, if you consider the amount of investment you know, in any given farm, you know, between, you know, seed, fertilizer, you know, equipment, you name it, and then think of that as a potentially lucrative target for somebody who's, you know, wanting to try to lock up a system or deny access to data, you know, it's attractive. Uh, the other thing I'd say is that in some cases, the uniqueness of some of the tools that we deal with because they are very complicated, because there are, you know, pretty much on one hand, you can name the vendors that you would deal with. Uh, ideally, there are a lot of, you know, well-established ones who know what they're doing and vet their products well, but, uh, you know, it, it tends to be, you know, kind of a, a limited, uh, how do I want to say this? Uh, you've got a limited pool to choose from, so, yeah, I think that it does, you know, kind of lend itself to attracting the the sorts of threats that we're talking about here, and you know, to be all the more reason to to you know exercise even greater caution. Yeah, I I echo a lot of what you said. I think from our perspective, we look at it from a broader perspective in terms of uh, geospatial technology is kind of um, it's not kind of it's a very uh, rapidly evolving field. It has broad applications for both national security and commercial uh, benefit, right? So you've got those two factors which make it very attractive to foreign actors. You could have uh, nation state actors that are interested in acquiring the technology for the benefit of their own uh, country, or you could have uh, commercial uh, uh, cyber intrusion type sets that are looking to steal the technology for financial benefits uh, to benefit either a burgeoning business in another location or to ransom it for whatever purpose. Um, and then you could have kind of a, a, a cross-pollination of both. One of the things that we're seeing from where we sit is the blending and the blurring of that bright line between nation state actor and uh, uh, cyber criminal type actor. You might have a person who operates during the day as a paid operative for a, a nation state bad actor, right? Working on a national security project and then at night they clock out, they go home and they're on their own system uh, working for profit for whatever uh, cyber criminal gang is trying to obtain information for, for pure profit, right? So those lines have blurred completely and that makes your industry very attractive because it kind of straddles both of those and it's rapidly, rapidly evolving, so. Yeah, and the, just to pile on to one of the points you made, it's not all about disruption or about extortion. No. Some of it's about just straight what you'd consider old school industrial espionage. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there is tremendous value in a lot of what you guys are looking to do. And that can be easily monetized, you know, by somebody else, you know, and including, you know, or maybe even more so somebody overseas. 
So securing your technology just from you know someone coming in and liberating it for their own uses, you know that's you know another thing that you want to I would advise that you really try to to ensure uh, you take a look at because the work that you're doing is tremendously important. It's tremendously valuable, you know, to include for somebody who wants to sell it, you know, even though it's not their own work. So, so here at the T-Rex, a lot of our focus is on um, individuals starting a business, entrepreneurs, um, or you know, small businesses that are uh, kind of moving into new areas. So particularly for those startups and small businesses, what are the threats um, that they should be the most concerned about? Um, Mark? Well, beyond ransomware, can you think of anything else? We always talk about having an incident response plan. So even if you're a small startup, you should have a plan ahead of time for what are you going to do if, maybe it's not a ransomware lockout of your system, maybe it's a business email compromise situation, right, and someone's trying to take advantage of your, uh, your bank account, right, or your financial backing. Um, so to Jill's point, that's, that's excellent, right? Have that plan in advance, and then I think we always say contact the Bureau. Um, is everybody familiar with the Internet Crime Complaint Center, ic3.gov? If not, you should be. It's the, it's the government's clearinghouse for cybercrime reporting. So you should know Jill Mansfield, right? Because if you're here local in St. Louis and you're hit with a ransomware attack or someone has used a BEC to take it, you know, to empty out your bank account or you've clicked on a bad link and now you've got, you know, an intrusion set running through your network, you're going to want to contact Jill. But at the same time, you're going to want to report that to IC3 because IC3 brings to bear all the resources of the federal government to look at that problem. And we can compare it to other things that are occurring in other parts of the country. Uh, and it helps us catalog threats and incidents around the world so that we have a better way to prepare for those. And we might have an off-the-shelf solution for you. So thank you for reminding me of that. I've blanked out on that one. So. Now, the only thing I'll add is kind of echoing what I'd said before about try to be aware of the environment that we're putting together if you're wanting to do business with us. I mean, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, you should or that we're the only customer around. But if you are, just be aware of the environment that we have to work in because we don't have a great deal of latitude in saying, well, we really like what they're doing. So even though it doesn't have X, Y, or Z, or you know, they've sourced this, this particular piece of code from Moldova, yeah, that'll be okay. Uh, it's not something that we can you know, easily get around. So to the extent possible, you know, and it's probably extensible to other things too. I mean, if you're trying to sell to the finance sector, sell to the health sector, guess what? They've got a lot of similar concerns to what we have. I mean, you know, data security, data integrity, network intrusion integrity, all of that. Uh, I mean, these are, these are things that they care about deeply. So, you know, know your customer, know what it is you're trying to, you know, sell to someone understand what environment they have to try to run it in and make sure that there's not some you know in immediate incompatibility from the start so actually my, ne my next question was going to be like what what are you what are you supposed to do after a cyber attack but i, I guess you kind of answered i can expand on one thing yeah that'd be good so yeah i'm not going to repeat myself but i want to give you guys an example of kind of why the fbi is value add right so uh We've done this several times, but one of the more recent cases, uh, we had a company here, which will remain nameless, who was the victim of a business email compromise scam, right? They got took for several million dollars uh, through this scam. Uh, so they immediately called IC3, they got a hold of Jill, and because we have the resources and, and the tools that we have and the relationships that we have, we were able to leverage relationships with foreign partners, with our legal attache. So you, you may or may not know this, the FBI has an international presence these days. We have what we call legal attache offices in embassies around the world. I think it's 74 countries at this point in time, right? Legal attaches don't draft wills and powers of attorney. They're FBI agents stationed overseas and they liaise and interface with foreign law enforcement partners to help advance our investigations. So with those relationships, and with the ability to tap into the banking industry and partners in the banking industry, we stopped that payment from going out. And we recovered, I think it was how many millions of dollars? 12, 15? 
close to it. It was like $15 million that we saved from going overseas to a bank to a country that we would never be able to get our hands on it again. So that's the value of working with the Bureau. It may sound intimidating. From where you sit, you're like, I would never call the FBI. I'm going to have agents crawling all over my business and asking all these intrusive questions. That's not what we're there to do. We're there to help find solutions to help you get back on track, get your business back up and running. And like I said, we might have relationships we might have off-the-shelf solutions that help get you there in a hurry, but we can't help you if we don't know about it. And that's why it's so important to reach out to IC3.gov and to the FBI field office here in St. Louis. We can't do everything for everybody, right? We have limited resources, but let us help you make that determination about where we can step in and what we can do. And maybe we have partners that will help uh, with, some of the, with some of the work that we can accomplish. We have great partnerships with local, state, and federal agencies that are all part of the cybersecurity workspace. And, and it would be fair to say, Jill, you're going to be here after to answer additional questions for a few minutes and get your contact information. Awesome. No, I have to whisper away. I'm sorry. Uh, no. <laughs> well, it's false advertising. <laughs> uh, so, so shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, we, we kind of talked about uh, cybersecurity in the in the very reactive form, but now thinking about you know what can we do to be more proactive? Um, we did talk about you know good good cyber awareness and and, and kind of building that culture, uh, but what about um, you know becoming a cybersecurity professional or uh, maybe taking that on as as uh, as an additional duty? Um, are, what what are the skills or what you know is there even demand in the federal government for cybersecurity skills and and what are those, and, and can you kind of expand on that? We'll start with NGA, Chris. All right. Uh, short answer, yes. As far as the demand signal, uh, there's an entire office within our IT organization that's focused on nothing but cyber. Uh, that office is now busily working on how we're going to implement the administration's uh, Zero Trust Directive. Uh, <clears throat> and that's in addition to all of the work that they normally do on a day-to-day -day basis with just helping to secure our existing networks, looking at what the future direction is going to be with our IT infrastructure, uh, working with us on all of the screwball ideas that we're planning to roll into N2W. Uh, so, you know, the, the short answer is yes, there is a tremendous demand signal within NGA, and we're not even the biggest in that, and Mark's going to be able to, to trump us significantly on what the interest would be there. But, uh, you know, the other thing I'll, you know, just as far as the, you know, what to pursue, uh, I think people in the St. Louis area are in a, a tremendously advantageous uh, situation, and I tell my daughters this all the time, and I don't know that they, you know, they didn't realize it. The number of high-end, I mean, world-class academic institutions right in this metropolitan area is unusual. I mean, really unusual. Uh, and a lot of those have very robust cybersecurity curriculums. So, you know, you're well placed and, and to be able to pursue it as a, you know, a, a degree focus or even, you know, a certificate program or just continuing learning. There are all kinds of programs that I know I'm aware of because guys who have worked for me and guys who work over at NGA have taken advantage of them. So in terms of getting that kind of preparation and skill set, uh, this is a great place to do it. Yeah, I love this question because I have three kids and I've told all of them that like cybersecurity is the thing that you need to study if you want to have a profitable future and they never listen to me. So <laughs> in one ear and out the other, they want to be, I don't know, football players and artists and things of that nature. But uh, yes, the answer is yes. The, the FBI is very much hiring cybersecurity professional, professionals. And what I want to make sure everybody understands is like, so you've got me and Jill, we're special agents. We go through training at Quantico. We carry guns and badges and all that stuff. And we're kind of like jacks of all trade. But that's just like one aspect of our workforce. We hire computer scientists, data analysts, forensic examiners, uh, data operations uh, specialists who, who do all kinds of great analytical work for us. We have multi a multitude of job classes and descriptions that work in the field of cyber investigations and cybersecurity, and we're always hiring and we're always interested in talking to people that have an interest. Here's the catch, and I'm always upfront about this, we don't pay well. 
I mean, it's just the fact of them. It's just the way it is. We don't pay well. It's certainly not as well as Amazon Web Services or Google or whatever else, right? So our draw is we have a mission, and our mission is usually the, the key attraction to wanting to work for the FBI, right? We protect national security. We have an international footprint. We work across the world and throughout the country, and we protect people every day, and that is our, our reason for being. If that's something that interests you besides just making money, I'm happy to talk to you about it, so is Jill. I will tell you that we understand that we can't always be underpaying, and uh, there is a move afoot. Uh, so uh, we work, or we are working with OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, which is kind of like the federal government's HR department, and we're making a push to enact special rules that would produce higher pay for people with specialized technical skills. Uh, that is not an easy thing. If you can imagine trying to lobby the federal government's HR department to make those changes just for us, it's a very difficult uphill battle, but it's something we're working on, right? So yes, later on, I may be able to sit up here with a straight face and tell you, we will pay you a lot more than we used to. Not as much as Amazon, but more than we used to. But for now, uh, you know, we don't offer that attraction. What we offer is a sense of duty, patriotism, mission, and an opportunity to do things that you would never do in any other environment uh, outside of what we do in the FBI. Ditto on not being able to pay as well as Amazon. <laughs> well, everybody's got to start their journey somewhere, though, too. Right? It's a great place to, to, to learn the mission. And, and, you know, as a former federal government employee myself, like, I, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today with, without that experience and opportunity. So, 35 yeah. years later, I don't regret yeah. Yeah, I, and there, there, it should be easier to, you know, to do the revolving door to bring people in and out. That's, that's always another discussion too. Um, so, you know, beyond just, you know, working directly for the government, I think, you know, you see a number of contract opportunities and, and, and um, other ways to interface with, with the government in terms of developing new technology or um, providing services for the government. Um, so, with, with you know strict, strictly with cybersecurity in mind, you know what what should um, you know students or young entrepreneurs be doing to prepare for future opportunities in the cybersecurity sector, Chris? Uh, just kind of reiterate what we were just both talking about. Uh, that you know field of study is available; it's open, uh, and it doesn't have to be exclusively you know, a Bachelor of Science in Cybersecurity. It can be computer science, it can be data science, it can be, you know, network structures, you know, communications theory. You know, <clears throat> all of these contribute directly to the ability to harden, secure, and respond to a cyber incident on a computer system. And, you know, it's more than that too. I mean, you know, we were talking a little bit about uh, supply chain earlier. Uh, one of my daughters was interested in computer engineering until she decided data science was more cool. Uh, that's more the hardware end of things. And having that kind of skill set is necessary in being able to validate that what's going on on that chip or on that motherboard is what it's supposed to be and nothing more. Uh, so, you know, the. I would say that the, the skill set and the academic background, uh, it, it's the, the technical areas that you would suspect, but it might not be as narrow as you might otherwise expect. You know, that there are a lot of different areas that you could come to this from. I love this question because I get to answer it in a way that you're probably not expecting. So number one, you can't be a felon, all right? So don't break the law. How many of you, I'm, I'm going to date myself, anybody ever see the movie Stripes? All right, so have you ever been convicted of a felony? Convicted? No, not convicted, right? So don't be convicted of a felony and you'll be great. You'll be in one foot on your way towards being working with the FBI or being a federal contractor. I don't think you can be a federal contractor if you've got a felony conviction. So in all seriousness, though, seriously, what Chris said, right, know your craft, study, uh, network, I think that goes without saying. It, it's, it's the lifeblood of the business community. Same thing with trying to get your foot in the door with the federal government. Network with your peers and network with professionals that are in the federal government and un understand how that process works. Uh, and then finally, uh, uh, my last point is don't forget your soft skills. 
So you may be the smartest computer scientist in the world and have incredible programming ninja skills that are amazing, but if you can't talk to people, if you can't have an intelligent conversation with somebody about something other than ones and zeros, it's gonna be really hard for me to hire you because I need those soft skills in the environment that I operate in, right? You have to be able to talk to people, you have to be able to work in a team, you have to be able to function outside of a computer screen, right? So soft skills are an another aspect of your development that you should work on. Yeah, I love that, that was a great answer. Uh, so so um, before we open it up to the uh, audience for, for questions, do you have any other comments or anything you'd like to add at the end here? No, we're all, all good. All right, so we got time for three questions. Hi, uh, my name is Brendan. I work with uh, Notaros Inc. here in St. Louis. We focus on zero trust technologies, uh, particularly blockchain implementations. Um, but my, uh, my question is regarding the quantum supremacy that we're about to see. Um, I think you know, in the public sector, people are predicting that uh, Q-Day, the day that whenever a quantum uh, computer can actually surpass a regular computer is about 2030. I would expect that state actors with you know, their private technology, it's gonna be much sooner. Um, the Zero Trust Initiative from at the federal level uh, is, you know, specifies AES-256, tra traditional uh, cryptographic standards is um, within like four years. So like that's right up to the edge of where, you know, Q-Day could potentially become imp impactful for corporations. Uh, is how quickly do you think that we can actually transition to a quantum secure environment? Uh, and is that like a realistic expectation for us? So again, I am not a computer expert, right? I understand that quantum computing is like a, an incredible leap in technology that will obsolete most of our current security apparatus, if I'm getting that correctly, right? I'm here to tell you the federal government is not prepared for that, okay? And the federal government does not move at the speed of technology and does not move at the pace of business. And so what's gonna happen is we're gonna wake up one day and go, holy crap, this is a problem, we being the federal government, and then we're gonna look to you all for a solution. And that's pretty much, unless I'm being too cynical, that's pretty much how it's gonna go. Normally I am the cynical one. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't claim to be an, an expert on quantum. Uh, it has very, how do I say this, and you probably know this better than I do. It's really good at certain things. And other things, it's par or not as good. So I think it's one of those things that we have to be careful of in terms of you know, how much we you know, uh, freak out over it. You know? Uh, I know people who are looking at you know, quantum proof encryption. Uh, it, it is a thing. People are looking at it. Uh, I know that there are ways that people are looking at trying to uh, you know, deal with you know, some of the threats of. You know, at this level, you know, a sleeve inside of a sleeve inside of another sleeve. You know, maybe one of them is easily, or not easily, but within you know, runtime of X, you know, uh, vulnerable, you, you put three of them together and now what do you have to deal with? So I'm not, Mark is exactly right in terms of the, the, the federal government does not respond quickly. It's a big ship, you know, turning that ship takes a little bit of, you know, anticipation. Uh, so I, it's something we need to worry about. I think there are certain people who are worried about it. You know, they, they live up in Maryland and they're really smart guys. Uh, so I'm not, uh, I, I'm not thinking that the sky is falling yet, but I completely agree that it is something we need to be very closely tracking. And to, to Mark's comment that we're looking to, you know, the commercial sector and, you know, to really smart people with, you know, degrees in theoretical mathematics and, you know, all of that good stuff to, to come forth with their good ideas. And to the IBMs and the Googles, you know, who are coming up with these, hey, this is a, I forget, what is it, like a, a 16 qubit machine is like the, the goal now or something. Uh, 
because that's going to be the best defense. You know, the best defense is a good offense, right? So having that capability and you know being able to understand it and work with it is going to be incredibly important to our response to it. Hopefully, that's not too obscure. No. So, yeah. Any more questions? Is that it? Just one. All right. We just want to make sure. We yeah, and, and make sure you, you you state your name and who you work for. Okay. Uh, Orion Fuller, <laughs> I work for Scale AI. So the question I have is kind of on the culture of cybersecurity and almost, in one way I think the federal government has swung too far to the point where the cybersecurity risk opens up the government to a risk of not acting fast enough, much like the quantum thing. So we build a software that's in high demand for the federal government, right? We do data labeling, AI, ML, and we do it really well. But we struggle in like showing the new way to build software um, and secure it for the federal government because the practices and stuff are outdated, right? So how do you like educate those cybersecurity professionals that there's a better way to do this um, and take the risk to move a little bit faster so we don't get outcompeted by our near peer competitors? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, my perspective, a lot of what you're talking about is just the software development uh, framework or workflow and how we approach that, right? And the government has not necessarily kept pace with you know, modern Scrum or other uh, approaches to doing that. Or actually, I think Scrum's probably old now and that's what we're just now starting to try to do. Um, there are people who are trying to push for more responsive, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the terms, uh, methodologies in, in software development, uh, you know, building low, moving high, uh, trying to, you know, uh, allow the, the technology to mature in an environment that is more conducive to that before we insist on it having to, you know, go be in an environment where it's much more closed off from the ability to, to alter it or to make changes to it. Um, there is the nature of the beast though. I mean, you know, uh, we had uh, conversations with a vendor uh, not too long ago because we were looking at, uh, we're doing wireless in the new building. You know, that blows certain people's minds, okay? Uh, one, uh, an important piece of that is the user endpoint device, right? So we're looking at a hardened, you know, OS for that user endpoint device. One of the companies we were talking to does avionics software. Um, they do zero fault software. You know, those of us who are familiar with software know, you know, it's, I forget, I'm going to probably get this wrong. It's like, you anticipate, I think it's somewhere on the order of 50 to 75 errors per 10,000 source lines of code or something like that. They do zero. And they can demonstrate that it operates at zero. It's a very small base of code because they iterate on it multiple times to get it to that, you know, I can trust this to control the Alevon movements on an F-35 because it's a, it is only as big as it absolutely has to be. So there's a, you know, there's a driver for certain things. Uh, we're working towards trying to be as open and as responsive and embracing. And you know, if you know Alex Lair, who's the CTO for the agency, NGA, you know, they just pushed out a software development framework you know, document that talks about here's where we're going. You know, this is what we're wanting to do. Build low, you know, move high, you know, have a test environment that mimics your operations environment, you know, be able to promote things to the baseline more quickly. Um, yeah, if you haven't had a chance, I would, I would go find that. I think it's readily available on our on-class website. Um, so the movement is there, or there's, tr there's an effort to try to move to that. But then there's also just the nature of what we were talking about that has to be balanced with that, that in certain cases, 
we do things that determine whether or not that Navy ship is going to run aground on a reef in the China Sea, or whether that VIP transport is going to hit the side of a mountain, or that tactical aircraft is going to clip a cable car uh, line over in the Alps. Um, so that level of scrutiny and concern is, is just part and parcel of what we do business. Uh, it's it's not necessarily the same everywhere, but it's it's the other side of that scale that we have to balance it within our agency at least. Awesome. Time for one more if we if we have any more questions. All right. Um, well, oh, we you only get one question. <laughs> one question per. But we'll have questions. You can, we'll have time afterward to talk. Every time I do something like this, someone usually asks, so what exactly constitutes a felony? Does anybody want to ask me that? <laughs> like if I had gambling winnings in 2012 that were under $5,000 and didn't report those, is that a felony? Usually I get a lot of questions like that. No? All right. <laughs> They're waiting for after the okay. event. They'll, they'll ask you on, you know, one-on-one. Um, so, so Thank you, gentlemen, for, for joining us tonight. Um, our next uh, Geosource Unleashed event is actually just in two weeks. They're typically monthly. Um, our November event is going to be in two weeks on November 2nd. And it'll be, um, we'll be joined by uh, Ms. Cynthia Snyder, NGA's Associate Director for Support, and Ms. Celia Hopkins, NGA Director or Deputy Associate Director for Capabilities, um, along with uh, Freddie Wills, who is the Vice President for STEM Initiatives and Research Partnerships at Harris-Stowe State University. Um, and we'll be talking about persistent leaders through changing times. Um, and again, that's, that's on November 2nd, 4 to 6 p.m. Um, hope, hope all of you who are here tonight will join us uh, in two weeks. Uh, so, so let's give our, uh, our two panelists here a, some applause. Thank you, gentlemen.